You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com. Hey, good morning, Res. Thank you for that welcome. I'm so glad to be back here among you again. I'm Tish and I love this church. We've been here since its infancy, and we're so glad to be back. We love the mission that God has given you to the people and to the culture of Austin. And also, happy sixth day of Christmas to you, and happy Christmas Sunday one. I hope that you not only celebrated Christmas Day, but that you've been finding ways to celebrate Christmastide. And you're here this morning, so you're not only keeping Christ in Christmas, you're also keeping the Mass in Christmas, so you got that going on for you. Well done, well done. And I hope your celebration has been lavish, because what we are celebrating every year at this time is the salvation of the world through the incarnation of the God of Israel. And in various times and in various places, God spoke to his people through his prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir over all things, and through whom he also made the universe, as the book of Hebrews begins. Everything God wanted to speak to us about his character and his essence, everything he wanted to say about the goodness of his creation, its enslavement and sin, and the rescue that he has planned and initiated in Christ, he has definitively said, in Christ. The former Archbishop of Canterbury, Michael Ramsey, once wrote this, God is Christ-like, and in him is no unchristlikeness at all. Everything God wanted to say about himself he has said definitively in Christ through the incarnation of this little baby. We need not worry that there is some residue of lingering darkness in God that stands behind the revelation of himself in Christ. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. That is what John the disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved, concludes after a life of knowing God in Christ. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. In Christ, we have seen the radiance and the splendor and the beauty of God. And we have also seen, with terrible exactitude, the evil of our own hearts and the darkness of this world. But he has not shown us his majesty and our misery in order to condemn us, but to set us free to walk in love as Christ has loved us, as St. Paul says in Ephesians. We see not just the darkness of our hearts and of this world, but we also see what God is doing and has done about the darkness. And what God has been doing is this strange and surprising thing. It's this paradox. The word of God becomes a wordless baby. The one who crafted the earth and the heavens with wisdom, as the Proverbs say, as helplessly laid in swaddling clothes in a manger. The one who created male and female and gave Israel the law as born of a woman and born under the law to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption as children of God. See, Christianity revels in paradoxes. Infinity is dwindled to infancy. As Gerard Manley Hopkins once wrote in my favorite description of the Incarnation ever, God becomes flesh. Spirit takes on matter. The impassable one suffers impassably. That's what Cyril of Alexandria wrote very worthily in the fourth century. The impassable one suffers impassably. We confess these wonderful paradoxes not because faith is against reason, but because faith elevates reason. 
Because what we believe is a dilemma. What seems like a dilemma to us is not a contradiction to God. Spirit can take on matter. God can become flesh. We can be made partakers of the divine nature. You think I'm making that up? That's what 2 Peter says. All this through Jesus Christ, who is the mediator between heaven and earth, now and always, into the resurrection, Christ will continue in that priestly office. And the incarnation is the ultimate expression of what the Old Testament calls God's chesed, his covenant love for his people and his creation, his refusal to let sin and death and the devil speak the final word over us. He will not let that happen. So let all creation praise the name of the Lord. That's what our psalm says. He, is, he commanded and they were created. He has raised up a horn that is a king for his people. Praise for all his faithful, for all the people of Israel who are close to him. Praise the Lord. Although sin is a terrible cancer, and it's infected all the good cells of God's good creation, God knew the way to heal it. This was the way to heal it. He robed himself in our flesh, and with loud cries and tears, he offered his own life from cradle to grave as a living sacrifice. That's the kind of king, the kind of horn that God has raised up for us, one who can unweave the dark work that sin and death has wrought in us and has brought us to hell. He is a kind king of righteousness who entered hell for our sake and brought us back to God. That's what we're celebrating today. That's what the incarnation is about. And Luke's lengthy infancy narrative is an extended testimony and a praise of this surprising rescue mission of God in the incarnation. So in morning and evening prayer, the church prays after each scripture reading a great many canticles. It's from the Latin word for song. And a great many of these songs, like the Song of Mary, the Song of Zechariah, and the Song of Simeon, are taken directly from Luke's infancy narrative. Luke's narrative is powerful, y'all. He's been bowled over by the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. His life has been forever changed. And God has taken Luke's substantial gifts and delivered them over to the service of the kingdom. Luke was Paul's companion and physician. He faithfully assists Paul in the proclamation of the gospel to the Gentiles, and he stays with him even when everybody else abandons him. One of the most poignant moments in all of Scripture to me is when at his trial in Rome, Paul is in prison waiting to die, and he writes Timothy, and he says, Everyone has abandoned me, and only Luke is with me. Everyone has abandoned me. Only Luke is with me. The kind of dedication that we see in Luke's life in the canon of the New Testament has been produced by an encounter with this same Jesus who was laid in the manger. And it leads him to devote his ample medical and literary gifts to the service of the gospel. Luke writes by far and away the best and most sophisticated Greek in all of the New Testament. And Acts in particular is full of all of these allusions to classical literature. Luke was an educated man. And it's no exaggeration to say that Luke's gospel is among the most significant and influential pieces of literature ever written in the service of humanity. Luke sanctifies medicine as a noble calling. And Christian doctors and other medical profession, professionals throughout the Christian centuries have drawn upon Luke and, and looked him for inspiration. I mean, he's the patron saint of doctors, for crying out loud. And he's inspired children's advocates throughout the ages. 
In fact, where Christianity has taken deep root, its most remarkable effects have been on the welfare of women and children. And we can trace this influence almost directly to the power of this infancy narrative. When you meditate upon your Lord and Savior as a baby, a helpless baby, and as a child and as an adolescent developing in maturation, you cannot help but take seriously the dignity and the humanity of children. And in his gospel, we seek Luke's agile mind composing this compelling history. Luke commits himself at the beginning of the gospel to interviewing eyewitnesses and making an orderly historical account. So his infancy narrative, which includes our passage today when Jesus is an adolescent, is the most kind of filled out of any of the gospels. And one of his chief eyewitnesses, most scholars agree, is Mary herself. Luke says two different times in this infancy narrative that Mary treasured or pondered these things in her heart. First times after the Annunciation. And then again here in this passage today. She's also the only person, actually, about whom Luke makes this observation. So, hey, by the way, if you're reading the Bible and you see a phrase repeated and spoken only of one particular person, pay attention. Something of outsized importance is being said. Like, we don't like repetition in our literature and modernity. We've been trained to write economically, you know, not to repeat ourselves. But in the ancient world, repetition was a critical literary device. If something is repeated, you need to pay attention. So Luke is saying, hey, pay attention to this person and to what I am recording of what she said about Jesus. And how remarkable is it, actually, that Mary is the one who is the eyewitness? Not only because she is the mother of God, though that is true, but because of the tremendous dignity that Luke is giving to women by listening to and prioritizing her testimony. Women in ancient Israel, as in other Hellenistic societies, could not testify in a court of law. They were regarded as intellectually inferior, easily impressionable, and easily misled. But not so for Luke. Why is that? He has too much evidence at his disposal. Jesus chose women as the eyewitnesses. Luke has had his intellect and his imagination expanded by his encounter with Christ and his experience with this church that was composed not only of Jew and Gentile together, but also slave and free and male and female with equal dignity and dominion again restored to both. And Luke says to us here in this passage, implicitly, he's saying, pay attention because Mary is the paradigm for discipleship. Say yes to Jesus as she has said yes to Jesus. Say, let it be unto me as you have said, because that's the posture of the disciple. Luke has followed her in his own life by saying, let it be unto me as you have said. And so Mary here witnesses to Jesus as she has experienced him. She testifies to these things that she has treasured in her heart ever since she said, let it be unto me as you have said. And she tells us not only about Jesus' birth, but about this remarkable story in his adolescence, which is of a piece with the infancy narrative, even though Christ here speaks for himself. And one of the key features of the infancy narrative as a whole is to highlight the devoutness as well as the poverty of this holy family. So when Jesus is born, he is presented, he is circumcised. Jesus is dedicated to the Lord as the firstborn, just as Samuel was in the passage that immediately precedes the one we had read to us this morning. And Joseph and Mary make offerings for purification after childbirth, just as the, just as the law in Leviticus commands. They make an offer of turtle doves. Notice that. They make this offering of turtle doves. It's the offering of the poor. 
This is a poor family. This is a family with not many resources, but with great piety. And then in this passage, we learn that Jesus' family made an annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem, along with a caravan of people. And Israelites, according to the law, were to make three pilgrimages to Jerusalem every year, at Passover, at Pentecost, and at Tabernacles. And as they wound their way up the steep slope to Jerusalem, Jerusalem's on a hill, so the road up is very steep. And as they would walk that road in pilgrimage, they would sing or recite the Psalms of Ascent, Psalms 123-134, if you're counting at home, as they walked. By the time of Jesus, however, the Israelites who lived far from Jerusalem would make this pilgrimage once a year at Passover. So we should imagine Jesus' family climbing this steep path to Jerusalem, having their hearts formed in love and service to God as they sing, I call on the Lord in my distress, and he answers me. That's the beginning of Psalm 120. As, we, as the Israelites are making their ascent to Jerusalem, so they are also making the ascent to God in their hearts. We should understand by Luke giving us this brief illusion that this is the economy, this is the, this is the setting in which Jesus is raised, in which his consciousness is coming to be formed. And we shouldn't shy away from that because Luke doesn't shy away from that. Although this is the God of Israel incarnate in a human being, this is also a true human being who matures and develops in stature before the Lord, just as Samuel did. Christ is the second and greater Samuel. Just as Samuel was priest and judge over Israel, so is Jesus. Man, did you guys catch that in that, that hymn by Charles Wesley, Hark the Herald Angels Sing? That's some serious theology there. Man. This story takes place as Jesus is still a boy the year before his bar mitzvah, and Jesus stays behind in the temple. So as I said, it's a story that presents Jesus again as the second and the greater Samuel. Just as Samuel is dedicated as Hannah's firstborn son, the product of God's miraculous opening of her womb, so Jesus is an even greater miraculous birth, not born just of a barren woman, but born of a virgin. And just as Samuel ministers in the temple, so Jesus teaches with an even greater authority in the temple. At age 12, he sits for three days in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when he returns to the temple again in Luke 4, he will teach again, and all will be astonished at his teaching because he spoke as one with authority. Christ is the supreme teacher of Israel. He is a prophet in that Old Testament sense, he speaks God's word to his people. But not only that, he is priest and he is king. See, Samuel was priest and judge over all of Israel, but Christ is an even greater priest and judge. He is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. That's what Hebrews says. His priesthood has no beginning and no end because Christ was in the beginning with the Father and, his, and he lives forever to mediate between heaven and earth and to make intercession for all of his people. Like Samuel, he's a priest to God's temple, and he increased in wisdom and stature before the Lord. If you've ever been a parent, you will understand the anxiety that Mary and Joseph had when they discovered that Jesus was not with them. It's understandable. But Jesus' response indicates that his level of maturation has proceeded to the point where he's differentiating himself from his parents. He's beginning to become clear about what his vocation is. There's an increasing certainty about his vocation that's emerging. Why were you searching for me, he asks. And then the Greek of the next sentence is crafted in such a way that it is capable of a couple of different interpretations. 
He might say, I must be about the things of my father. That's one possibility. I must be open to the will or the business of my father. And the second interpretation is this. I must be in the house of my father. Both of those dovetail together in this increasing certainty that he is the teacher of Israel. He is the supreme interpreter of the law, the teaching of Israel. What is his father's business? It is to heal all that which has become diseased. It is to shed light on the disease itself and to become the source of that healing. It is to seek and save the lost. It is to rescue the good creation from destruction. And his father's house is the place where that takes place. It's where atonement was made for the sins of Israel, the place where Israel was instructed in the Torah, the teaching of the law, that he was born to be and to minister in his father's house means that his incarnation is ordered from its inception to his death, to atonement for the sins of humanity, to the reconciliation of humanity to God. By taking on our humanity, Christ was committing himself to repairing the broken and defaced walls of our humanity, to healing everything that has become diseased in us. That's what we're celebrating when we think about the incarnation. It's, an, it's, a, it's a, a kind of magnitude that most of us have not yet grappled with. But if we are willing to take this season seriously, this Christmas tide seriously, that should be the meditation of our hearts. What does his incarnation do to our humanity? How does that incarnation make us partakers of the divine nature? That's the privilege we have as the baptized, as those who have faith in God. Most of us are hung over from holiday music, holiday parties, never want to hear another Christmas song ever, this grand shopping sprees that emptied our bank accounts. And all of this has really diminished Christmas as a season. But let us never forget that we, what we celebrate in Christmastide is infinity dwindled to infancy, the Word made flesh for the healing of our diseased humanity and His humanity. Do you want to receive this healing that Christ brings? Do you want to receive divine life which will make you partakers of the divine nature? Then come and receive him in the Eucharist. In the Eucharist, Christ is really, truly, and objectively present. From the earliest days of the church, this meal was called the medicine of immortality, the medicine that brings us to everlasting life. As John Wesley once put it, this is the food of our souls. This gives strength to perform our duty and leads us on to perfection. Do not underestimate the power of this meal or come to it lightly. The incarnate Christ will meet you here. So come reverently and worthily and repentantly. But hey, if you believe in Jesus today and you were baptized, come. If you belong to Christ, come to this table and receive your healing. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com.